You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, everyone, and you're all very welcome to our Employment Law Masterclass. Today, we are going to look at the topic of managing and affecting individual and collective redundancies in a remote environment. I'm Geraldine Carr. I'm a partner in the employment group in Matheson, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Emer Boyle, senior associate, and Denise Morin, an associate in the employment team here in Matheson. So to give you an overview of what we're going to look at today, we're going to run through how to affect redundancies fairly in the context of COVID-19. We look at what's a genuine case for redundancy and what's a fair process for implementing redundancies. We'll take you through an individual redundancy process where there may be a small number of redundancies impacted and also a collective redundancy process, which is the more larger scale reductions in headcount. We'll take a look at some common pitfalls that can arise in communications to employees around redundancies. So we have uh, prepared a sample at risk of redundancy letter, which has a number of red flags in it that we'll discuss with you. And then we'll also share with you the improved version of the communication with some of those issues corrected. And we'll discuss those as we're running through them. Towards the end of the session, we're going to run a poll with some questions around the theme of redundancies and just to assure you that any results gathered will be anonymous. And there's also a Q&A function on your screen. So please do feel free to uh, log any questions that you have for us there during the session and we'll be happy to deal with those towards the end of the session. So to kick off, many countries, I suppose, have implemented restrictions on employers in those jurisdictions implementing redundancies during COVID-19, but there's no such restrictions in Ireland. So employers may still impact or implement redundancies during the pandemic. And I suppose to do so fairly, the employer must look at whether there is a genuine case for redundancy and there must be a fair process followed. So there's been no relaxation of these requirements in light of COVID-19. There has been a temporary suspension of the entitlement to claim statutory redundancy payments in circumstances of layoff or short time. So this was introduced back in March. Typically, there is a requirement in a provision in the in the legislation which allows employees who have been placed on layoff for a period of four weeks or more or six weeks over the course of a 13 week period to claim a statutory redundancy. But the government introduced measures back in March which temporarily suspended that right for employees to claim statutory redundancy during the pandemic. And that's now been extended a number of times, but most recently up until the 30th of November. So the effect of that measure really is to take the pressure off employers by, I suppose, you know, taking away that entitlement from employees to to claim statutory redundancy payments where they've been put on layoff for, for a number of weeks. So I'm going to turn to Denise now just to take us through what is a genuine redundancy and also how do employers fairly implement a redundancy process? Thanks very much, Geraldine. So yeah, when looking at the genuine basis for redundancy, we need to turn to the Redundancy Payments Act, which provides that redundancy occurs where the employer ceases or intends to cease to carry on the business for which the employee was employed, or the employer ceases or intends to cease to carry on the business in the place where that employee is employed. 
Secondly, where the requirements of the business for which that employee was employed have ceased or diminished or are expected or to cease or diminish. Thirdly, where the employer decides that it's going to carry on its business with fewer or no employees. Fourthly, where the employer decides that the work to be done that the employee undertakes or has been employed to undertake, it will be done in a different manner going forward and the employee is not sufficiently qualified or trained. And lastly, where the employer decides that the work to be done that the employee undertakes will be done in a different manner going forward and that will be done by a person who is also capable of doing other work and the employee is not sufficiently qualified or trained. So what we can see from running through all the statutory definitions of redundancy is the two elements of impersonality and change and that's really key to look at and it is that the position and not the person that is to be made redundant and what changes happens that has brought about this proposed redundancy and in the vast majority of cases that we're seeing at the moment it has been that significant and very disruptive impact of COVID-19 on organisations. So once that genuine basis for redundancy has been established, we then look to turn to see, okay, well, how do we, you know, affect that redundancy fairly? And we look at the fair process in affecting that individual redundancy process. I suppose at the outset, it's important to note that where you have a genuine basis for the redundancy you know, but you don't affect it fairly or you don't afford full and fair procedures, then the employer is still exposed to an unfair dismissal claim, provided the employee has requisite service under the unfair dismissals legislation. So a question that's constantly coming up at the moment is, can we manage and affect redundancies remotely at the moment? And the very simple answer is yes. Prior to COVID-19, we certainly would recommend to clients, given the sensitive and difficult nature of redundancies, to ensure that they, that they do the process face to face. But the onset of COVID has really, just, as we all know, has changed the way we work. And as a result, you know, affecting that process remotely um, is very achievable now and absolutely can be done. And not only just the redundancy processes, but indeed disciplinary processes, grievance procedures, whatever, whatever needs to be done can be done remotely. By way of, I suppose, industry insight, we have seen certain employers run the whole consultation process remotely, but there have been other industries where, let's say, um, you have employees who have attended the workplace you know, but from the very beginning, let's say, of the since the initial lockdown stages, because they were deemed to be providing an essential service, or they have gone back to the workplace in the last number of weeks or months because they cannot perform the duties of their role from remotely. And in such circumstances, um, you know, their HR functions or the the business unit conducting the redundancy has gone on site to run that process. But obviously, you need to have to ensure that your safeguards are in place and that you're following public health advice and that you obviously are in line with your the level restrictions that are in place at that time. Turning now to so preparing for the consult consultation process, and this really is a crucial step, um, must be done to ensure the smooth running of the process. What we would typically see in that early stages before the consultation process commences is employers looking to put in place the step plan. Okay, what dates are the meetings going to take place? What communications do I need to issue? My at-risk letter, my letters you know, following each consultation meeting. And also having that business discussion with the business or the leadership to seem to say, okay, is there budget available here for an ex gratia termination payment? And what does that look like? And, and it's good to have those discussions in advance of, of the consultation process commencing. 
you know, we think that considering alternatives to redundancy is actually a very key feature in the current circumstances. The government in March and April were very keen to come out to implore employers to maintain that employment relationship. And indeed, we've seen that from the government initiative and across in Ireland, but also across the EU of this government support by way of, in Ireland, the temporary wage subsidy scheme or now the employer wage subsidy scheme. And these are all measures to really maintain that employment relationship. So in that regard, we consider this now to be a very important point, you know, documenting and considering alternatives to redundancy. This, this can be done in advance of the consultation process, but also can be done during the consultation and should really be a cornerstone of it. And such could include, you know, offering potentially sabbaticals for employees, you know, shorter working weeks, part-time working, job sharing, introducing pay freezes, introducing salary cuts. All of these are alternatives to redundancy before, I suppose, the proposal of redundancy. So then is seen as a, a last resort. Just in terms of the purpose of consultation, just to remind us all that it really, the purpose of it is to explore in a genuine and meaningful way with the employees who are put at risk of redundancy. Are there any alternatives? Can we avoid the redundancy? What suggestions has the employee got to avoid the the proposed redundancy of his or her role? And what ways can we limit the impact of the redundancy or the proposal on him or her? And it's really about engaging and listening to what the, and, and really considering what the employee has to say on that. Thanks, Denise. That's really helpful. And could you speak to us a little bit about when selection process or a selection matrix is required? Um, is it required in all instances of redundancies or just certain scenarios? The answer is a selection isn't always required. Well, let's say, for example, if you have a standalone role or the role is not interchangeable, then selection will not be will not be required and, and the consultation process can embark on that particular role. But selection will be required where, for example, there are one or more a number of employees who are engaged or who undertake the same or similar work. And in those circumstances, an employer is obliged to pool that cohort of employees together and determine then again objective criteria, which is very key objective criteria, you know, which of those employees will be provisionally selected as being at risk of redundancy. I suppose the objective criteria is really key. And and we would suggest that, you know, it it must be capable of objective justification. So technical expertise, skill, technical competency, training, and different qualifications would all be very easy to objectively justify. And, And we need to be very careful that we absolutely stay away from anything that could be seen to be directly or indirectly discriminatory. And kind of a prominent example of that is what, what appears to be a very objective, as I say, for example, you know, looking at your sales figures for the previous year or your sales commission yielded and having a look to see, okay, well, that's, that will be a good objective basis. But when you drill down into it, perhaps you had somebody who was on maternity leave or perhaps you had somebody for part of that year or you had somebody who was on carer's leave or indeed somebody out in illness absence and the underlying condition there was disability. So it is, there is caution um, with using your objective criteria. You just need to really drill down into it. Very good. And Denise, is there an obligation on employers to consult with the impacted employees about the selection criteria used? So the, the conservative view, it would certainly be that you do, that you consult with them, but, but that really leads to a very protracted process. And it also you know, embroils, I suppose, the full selection, the full cohort of those employees are then brought into the at-risk um, consultation process. So what we often see employers do is to avoid that very long process of engaging consultation on all the objective criteria is to actually identify who's part of the pool 
um, and then also actually carry out the selection um, against the objective criteria, identifying usually those who score the lowest as being at risk of redundancy. And then in, in the process of that consultation with those employees who have been provisionally selected for um, redundancy from the selection process, in consulting with them, you know, in terms of the selection criteria that were used, their selection for criteria. And to be honest, unless there's very overwhelming or compelling reasons why a selection criteria was used or why that employee was was selected for criteria, usually that decision to place that person at risk will stand. Very good. So I suppose there's two schools of thought. You can run the selection process and then consult with the individuals who have been provisionally selected as a result of that matrix that, that was used. Give them the opportunity to comment on it. And that's a consultation in, in itself as well. How long should a consultation process last? I know this is a question we, we often get and many US employers that we work with can be quite surprised with the length of time that it can take to implement a redundancy fairly here. So you might give us your thoughts on how long it should last or how many meetings you would recommend. Yeah, sure. So ideally, the consultation process would last about three weeks because you would like to have at least three meetings um, with the employee um, and each meeting should be about three to five you know days apart and I suppose the reason that the process should take that form is so that it really looks like that the employer has given you know adequate consideration to all the proposals that the employee may have raised during the consultation process or looking at alternatives to redundancy be that you know redeployment opportunities or other roles within the company and it's really just making sure that it looks like that even if the company does know that they're not viable options it's really still really important that that process takes effect like that now there are circumstances where a shorter process will be followed or or less consultation meetings will occur and that'll just really depend on you know how the the discussions evolve really so that a lesser process could be afforded but in general you, you should be looking really at a, a three-week period and three at least three meetings. Yeah, and it can really depend on the facts of, of the case and the number of alternatives that are available for discussion, if any, I guess. Is an employee entitled to bring a lawyer to or a solicitor to the employee consultation meetings around their proposed redundancy? Bottom line, no, they're not entitled to bring legal representative and we probably don't want we don't want that to happen you don't want the lawyer in the room so it's probably best to kind of preempt that and very much set out in each invitation letter to the to, to each of the meetings to say you're entitled you know to or you're you can be accompanied by a work colleague and, and really set the parameters on that very clearly and um, to avoid any you know discussion around legal representative or indeed a family member to, you know a, attending the meeting with them but certainly to set the parameters clearly at the outset that entitled to bring a work colleague or indeed a trade union representative in, in a unionised environment. And, and just one final point then, Geraldine, is, is that throughout the consultation process, it's, it's really, really important that the employer constantly gives that in all communication and certainly in every meeting that, that the employee is made aware that no decision in relation to the proposed redundancy of his or her role will be made until the conclusion of the consultation process. And, and that really is key and, and is not to be underestimated. Great. Thanks, Denise. Emer, can I turn to you now just to discuss some of the key requirements around collective redundancies? 
Certainly, and good morning, everyone. So now that Denise has set out the obligations for the individual redundancies, I'm going to take a look at the collective redundancy regime. And as you can see from the slide here, it's primarily a numbers game that we're looking at when deciding whether if you have a number of redundancies proposed in your business, whether you're going to be able to proceed with those as individual redundancies or whether they're going to meet a certain threshold that means a specific collective redundancy regime that operates under legislation here in Ireland, whether that's going to apply or not. If that regime does apply, there are certain statutory obligations for an employer that they have to observe. And of course, with those obligations come certain specific consequences for breaches. And just by way of, of overview of what those obligations are, there are information and consultation requirements with employees via their representatives and notification and information requirements and obligations to the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection. And whilst there are some overlaps with the individual process that Denise has described, the, what's key are the additional obligations um, under the collective redundancy regime if your reduction in headcount falls into that regime. For any of you who may be joining us today with workforces in the UK, you'll be familiar with the regime they have there, which has some similarities to our, our regime here in Ireland. But some of the key differentiators are the, the numbers, as I say, and as are set out for you on the slide. In the UK, where it's proposed that 20 or more employees in one establishment will be made redundant within a period of 90 days or less, their consultation on a collective basis arises. Whereas in Ireland, the threshold is, is quite a lot lower. And as you can see, the minimum threshold in Ireland is where five employees out of the total number of 21 employees in one establishment are at risk of redundancy within just a 30-day period. So as you can see, the thresholds are, are, are quite narrow. And as you can probably tell, the calculation of the threshold figure is key in terms of determining whether your reduction in headcount falls within the collective redundancy regime or within the individual regime as set out by Denise. And in making this calculation, the first thing that we say to employers when they come to us is that you, you, know, you must do an audit of your employees, particularly for larger workforces, but also in any size of a workforce. For example, if there are employees who are perhaps on, on a long-term leave. And the key piece here not to forget is that when calculating the number of employees in the establishment, you have to look at the 12 months prior to the redundancies. So it's not simply a, a snapshot in time. It's the 12 month prior number of employees that you have to look at. And you have to include certain numbers in this, including any voluntary redundancies and any fixed term workers within that 12 month period. What's also a key preliminary step when deciding whether you're in or out of the collective regime is the consideration of what is your establishment. The legislation gives us quite a broad and legalistic definition of an establishment is an employer or a company or a subsidiary company or a company within a group of companies which can independently affect redundancies. So as I say, fairly broad under the, the legal definition. And in practical terms, we consider it the unit to which an employee reports or is part of. So that can be quite complex. And as I say, it's a key first step. And, and it's often one that we work closely with clients on to decipher, because as you can see from the threshold figures, 
the application of the regime really turns on on what the threshold is and that in turn is reliant on, on what your establishment is in terms of calculating the full numbers of employees. And just by way of note at the, at the bottom of our slide here for you all not to forget even where the collective regime does apply to your reduction in headcount and, and you are going to be observing those statutory obligations what you also have to observe are the individual consultation obligations and you're not absolved from these simply because the collective regime will apply. Um, the reason for that is to mitigate against the risk of an unfair dismissals claim from an employee or, or more than one employee and the individual consultation piece with employees is really a key component in establishing a defence to a claim for unfair dismissal. So that part can't be forgotten. And, you know, the, the, the processes can run in parallel, but you have to, you know, allow your, your resources, your, your colleagues, if you're conducting the process for you, some space to allow for the individual consultation process as well. And ordinarily after the initial collective consultation process has begun, which I'll, I'll come to in a moment, you can begin that individual process as well. It's great, Imre, thank you. So it's key that an analysis, a thorough analysis is carried out of the numbers employed when they were normally employed to determine, first of all, whether the thresholds may be met for a collective redundancy. And if those thresholds are met, what are the key obligations for an employer if it's satisfied that it is proposing a reduction in headcount that triggers collective redundancy? Yeah, so to, to summarise, the obligations are information, notification and consultation. So you have to, as I said, notify the minister. You have to give them a certain information, which I'll set out momentarily. And, and the other key piece is the consultation piece and information piece with employee employees via their representatives. And we've summarised these obligations for you in this slide. And just to kind of give you a steer chronologically at a, at a high level, once you have identified the group of potentially impacted employees and, and made, you know, that initial announcement to your workforce, a key step is this initial consultation with employee representatives. So this is an obligation under the legislation that you as an employer initiate this consultation. And, you know, with a view to reaching agreement and just to say, which I will come back to, you have to initiate with a view to meeting agreement, but it doesn't mean that agreement necessarily has to be reached in all circumstances. Who is the employee representative that you'll be consulting with? If you are operating in a unionized environment, it'll most likely be your trade union rep. And if not, it's a, a person or persons chosen by the employees who are likely to be affected by the proposed reduction in headcount. And in the event that there are more candidates than employee representative positions, an election should be held for that employee representative. Very good. And a question that we've got a number of times from a number of employers is, um, do they have to elect rep employee representatives or what happens if the employees themselves don't want to elect an employee representative? What happens then? Yeah. And yes, we, we've, we've looked at this before for clients. I mean, it's usually a, a preemptive question and it, and it rarely arises in practice. You know, it would be rare that employees, for whatever reason, choose not to elect a representative. But for employers, what the legislation says is that 
they're obliged to put a facility in place for election of representatives. And if it is the case, for whatever reason, that employees choose not to elect representatives, there's nothing stated in the legislation of what an employer must do. I mean, so in in our view, so long as they've you know, tick that box, put the facility in place for the election, and it hasn't been utilised for whatever reason, the procedure, you know, that step of the procedure has been observed. And in terms of, of continuing with the procedure, all the employer can do is proceed on an individual basis, which, as we've set out, is a, is a separate, although parallel requirement anyway. And also, it doesn't absolve you of the obligations, the separate yet you know, and parallel obligations with the minister with notifying and informing the minister. So um, even if there's no employee representative elective, those obligations do still apply. Makes sense. And in circumstances where a number of employers will have a large cohort of their employees working remotely or working from home, have you any suggestions of how employers can manage an election process where employees are not physically present in the workplace? Yes, um, thankfully we have a, we've seen it done very successfully and as, as Denise said out and as we all know, we're now working in a, in a very different environment and although for a large workforce this, this can always have worked where um, and we've seen it done a lot recently where employers are using secure survey software and that works very well to run the election in terms of nomination balloting and the election process anonymously and you know I can I can say with confidence that has worked well for for a number of employers so that's a positive and not a barrier in current COVID restriction times. And just just to move on on to timing as well, there's there's a strict 30 day period within which notice for redundancy cannot be given. So from the initiation of the consultation period, the collective consultation period to the date of the notice of first dismissal must be a minimum of 30 days. The legislation is strict on that. And I suppose just to allow a bit of time for that election process that we've just discussed, what we ordinarily say to employers is, you know, give yourselves at least 10, if possible, 15 days in addition to the 30 days, you know, to allow your colleagues the time and and the resources uh, to be able to run that that election process where there is not a union environment and the representative isn't clear already. And likewise as well, the notification for the minister that has to be issued at least 30 days before the first notice of redundancy is issued. So that's a very strict time frame that that can't be breached, the 30-day period. And just that brings us on to what information is required to be given to employee representatives and also to the minister. There are some nuances between each of those notifications, but in terms of the commonalities of information that must be provided to the minister and the employee reps, include the reasons for the proposed redundancies, the number and descriptions of categories of employees whom it is proposed to make redundant, plus the number of employees normally employed. So that's going to be where your your good work and your efforts in doing your threshold analysis, those numbers are going to, to come in useful. The criteria proposed for the selection of the employees to be made redundant. Again, your fair, objective, non-discriminatory criteria that Denise set out in terms of selection is going to be shared with both the minister and the employee representatives. And also then the method of calculating any redundancy payment other than statutory redundancy. So if there is an ex gratia piece at play, the method of calculating that ex gratia payment 
also needs to be shared. And taking a look at the consultation process in practice and just building on your question, Geraldine, about how to do the election piece remotely. In light of current COVID restrictions, the collective consultation process in practice, as well as any individual meetings, these can be conducted virtually over secure group video calls and there's no barrier to that. And what we recommend in practice is that a day or two after the statutory notifications to both the minister and to your employee representative. So that essentially kicks off your your 30-day consultation period. So within a day or two of that, what we recommend is that the employer arranges the first meeting with the employee reps. And, you know, the reason we say one to two days is so that the employee rep has you know, some time and space to consider the information that they've been provided by the employer. And that first meeting is their opportunity to, you know, perhaps comment on the information given, raise any questions, put forward any preliminary views they have on, you know, avoiding redundancies or to to hopefully clarify any queries that they have. But, you know, it can be a complex process. And this initial meeting is ordinarily followed by at least one or perhaps two further meetings as necessary and appropriate. And from the employer's perspective here, what's really key is that you're shown to be giving proper consideration to suggestions made by representatives prior to any final decision on redundancy. So it's similar to the individual process where an individual employee might say to you that they have a certain set of skills that will hopefully avoid their redundancy if the employee rep puts forward an alternative that must be properly considered by the employer and taken into consideration before the decision to issue any redundancies are made and communicated. As I alluded to earlier, the purpose of the consultation is for the employer and the employee representatives to consult with a view to reaching agreement. But just to stress again, that's the obligation. However, is to to seek an agreement, but it's not, you're not obliged to actually reach agreement on these issues. And in circumstances where agreement simply isn't reached, that doesn't mean that you can't move forward to issue notice of redundancies. Very good. And Emer, I suppose to emphasize the importance of the collective redundancy legislation and compliance with the requirements in that legislation, could you take us through what are the main repercussions for an employer if it fails to follow the requirements to inform and to consult with employee representatives? Certainly. And I suppose the where the, the sting in the legislation is twofold. So firstly, an individual employee can bring a complaint to the WRC where the employer has failed to comply with notification and consultation obligations. The limit for that claim is up to four weeks gross remuneration per employee. So you can see a scenario where if an employer has chosen to ignore the consultation obligations, and if they have quite a large number of employees being made redundant, you can see how that would you know rack up quite quickly in terms of liability and costs for them. And just to say as well that that's distinct and separate to any other type of claim that an employee could choose to bring, you know, perhaps under the unfair dismissals or equality acts legislation in the context of their redundancy dismissal. So that's the complaint to the WRC. They're separately, an employer is open to fines of up to €5,000 for failure to conduct the consultation process correctly or to furnish the correct information to employee reps or the minister. 
and a much more severe fine of up to €250,000 can arise for breach of that 30-day period that I spoke about, that consultation period that is, you know, more or less protected in time. If you issue a notice of redundancy before that 30-day consultation period is up, you can be liable to this fine up to €250,000. Having said that, for context, to date, very few fines actually have arisen and there are only two that we are aware of as a group. Thank you, Emer. Um, so we'll move on to the next slide, which is where we've set out the a sample at risk of redundancy employment communication or a letter to an employee. And we've highlighted some common pitfalls that we come across in practice. And I'm going to take you through some of those just to, I suppose, highlight the key areas where this might trip up the employer. So for those of you listening in on audio, I'll read through it. It starts with Dear Joe, Dear Employee. Today we discussed and in red, your redundancy from the company. So the key concern with that is it needs to be very clearly set out in all communications throughout the redundancy process that it is a proposal to make the employee's role redundant. It relates to the role and not the person, as Denise set out at the start. And therefore, if by personalising it, saying your redundancy, that can cause the employer to trip up and it shows predetermination of the, the outcome. So that should say something like we discussed the proposal to um, make your role redundant. The second line goes on to say, as you know, we are making changes. And as a result of these changes, you were selected as being at risk of redundancy. So again, the, the first part of that line where it starts with, as you know, we are making changes is not helpful because again, it suggests that the employee should be aware of this and that it's already a predetermined outcome that these changes are going ahead. Again, this should be very clearly framed as it is a proposal and it should be explained to the employee what changes are being proposed. Again, where it speaks about where the employee was selected as being at risk of redundancy, it should be explained to the employee that a selection process was carried out, who else was involved in that selection process, and that the outcome was that the employee was provisionally, the employee's role was provisionally selected as being at risk of redundancy. The next sentence goes on to say the selection criteria used was based on objective non-discriminatory criteria. So again, the issue with that is it refers to the selection criteria used. It doesn't elaborate on what criteria were used and show the employee the scores that were awarded to that particular employee under the, each of the criteria. So they should be clearly spelled out in the letter and the employee should be given the opportunity to comment in the consultation meetings on the selection criteria used and on the scores that were attributed to that particular employee. The next line goes on to say no final decision has been made at this point. And you might think, well, what? there's nothing wrong with that line, but it's the context in which it appears. It follows a number of paragraphs where they clearly show that a decision has been made in the preceding paragraphs where it speaks about your redundancy and you were selected and we are making changes. So it's very important that the letter does say no final decision has been made at that point, but that that is incorporate throughout the whole of the letter and that the context clearly reflects that. It then goes on to say, we are now starting the consultation process to discuss any suggestions you may have, and you're invited to an individual consultation meeting this afternoon. So again, you may think, well, 
what are the issues there? So the key thing is, it's not just the employee who must put forward suggestions or alternatives or proposals and ways in which they can avoid their own redundancy. It is for the employer to also carry out an analysis of whether there is any proposed alternatives that could be implemented to avoid having to make the employee's role redundant and also to avoid having to terminate the employee's employment on account of redundancy. So it's kind of a twofold process there and the employer must, you know, do some work internally in looking for any alternative vacancies or open positions and provide a list of those to the employee, have a discussion with the employee about those uh, potential alternatives and also consider other measures such as a reduction to part-time hours or a pay cut and discuss the employer's views as to why any of those suggestions may or may not be viable. The second part of that line refers to inviting the employee to a consultation meeting this afternoon. The issue there is it's too soon. So the employee needs to be given time to consider the proposal that has been put to them to consider the fact that their employment is at risk of redundancy and to consider any suggestions they may have and any proposals that have been put to them by the employer that might avoid the redundancy of their employment. So again, we recommend around 24 to 48 hours notice at least is given to employees in advance of scheduling a consultation meeting with them. The final sentence goes on to say, if you wish, you may be accompanied at this meeting by a person of your choice. Uh, so the key issue there is to touch on the point that Denise made earlier that an employer wants to control who an employee may bring to these meetings. So ideally, it should specify that an employee is entitled to bring a work colleague to the meeting and then that person can be there in a support capacity. You want to avoid a situation where an employee may bring their solicitor or somebody else that, you know, perhaps is conflicted. So the key thing there is to specify clearly who the employee may bring to the, the consultation meeting. And the letter should be signed off by somebody who has authority to run an individual consultation process and to effect redundancies on behalf of the employer entity. And so that's why we have highlighted at the very end just a signature line as to who signs the letter. So onto the next slide we have set out the I suppose the improved version of this and this is a takeaway for you really but for those of you dialing in I'll read through it. So it starts with Dear Joe, the purpose of today's meeting is to inform you that the company is currently considering and we will insert the details of the proposed restructuring there. This proposed restructuring is under consideration due to, and again, it's for the employer to insert what details of the business rationale are there. We have undertaken a selection process using particular selection criteria, and it's for the employer to explain what selection criteria were used and to enclose a copy of that process and of the scores that were awarded to the employee. Following the selection process, unfortunately, your score against the criteria relating to other members of the selection pool is such that you have been provisionally selected for redundancy. The letter goes on to say, if your proposal is confirmed, the company may then have to consider terminating your employment by reason of redundancy. As such, your role is at risk of redundancy. And it goes on to say, I want to stress to you or emphasize that no final decision has been made, nor will it be made until the consultation process has concluded. So you'll see that it's clear from the context of the entire letter that this is still a proposal. We are consulting with the employee about this and ensuring a fair consultation process is followed. 
So onto the next slide then, it, it just finishes the letter to say that the employer would like to engage with the employee to see if together we can avoid the potential redundancy of the role or to explore ways to mitigate the impact of the proposal. It goes on to say we will organise to have a follow-up meeting and the details of the date and time of the meeting and the place, if relevant, should be inserted there. The employer can then say we should consider, uh, we will consider any proposed possible alternative to the proposal. And we invite you to also provide us with any suggested alternatives to the proposal that you may have. If you wish, you may be accompanied at our meeting next week by a work colleague or a trade union representative. That's included for those who, for those organisations who do recognise trade unions. Please let us know who this will be in advance so that we can arrange for the person to receive video conferencing details if that's applicable. So that's again, just so the employer is aware who the employee is bringing to the meetings in advance. And it goes on to say if, if the employee has any questions, the employer is happy to address them. So that's just a takeaway for you and just to kind of put into practice some of the points that we were making throughout the session. But Onto the next slide, we are going to run a poll. So in the next couple of minutes, a couple of questions will appear on your screen. As I mentioned at the outset, the results will be collected anonymously and they will be displayed on the screen also. Um, and it's just to get an idea of the trends in relation to redundancies during the current climate. Thank you. So just to run through some of those results, the first question around did your organisation affect redundancies as a result of COVID-19? We can see a very positive response there in that 78% of respondents have said that their organisations didn't affect redundancies, um, with only 22% who did. So that is quite positive. The second question is, is your organisation anticipating a need for a future reduction in headcount? We can see that there is a 50-50 split there. Um, so half of the, the respondents are anticipating that this will be a need. And I, I suppose there, there may be some uncertainty still at this point in time around that, but that seems to be an even split, which is also interesting. The third is, is your organisation anticipating a future need for other cost-cutting measures such as layoff, short time or salary cuts? Again, almost an even split there. We have 41% said that yes, uh, the organisations are considering such measures. 59% is no. So it's interesting to see the correlation between that and the first question where it considered whether the organisation has already affected redundancies. So the majority said no there, but here it looks like organisations are looking to plan for other cost-cutting measures. The fourth question then is when the government is no longer able to sustain the employee wage subsidy scheme, do you think your organisation will need to consider reducing its workforce or imposing other cost cutting measures? So I can see just the majority there, 53%, it's not applicable, meaning I guess your employees don't avail of the employee wage subsidy scheme. Whereas the next majority, let's say, is that no, the organisations won't be looking at considering reducing the workforce or imposing other cost cutting measures that's quite positive. But 9% said yes, we'll be looking at that. So it shows that the wage subsidy scheme is perhaps keeping people in employment for the short term. But it's, it's positive to see that that's quite a low result, just 9%. Thank you for your time participating in that but I'm going to move on to a couple of questions because I'm conscious we have a number of questions in the Q&A function and I've 
been jotting those down as Emer and Denise were speaking. So first question, I might turn to you, Emer, if that's okay. It relates to calculating the thresholds for collective redundancies. And it is, you know, how do we calculate the thresholds in our fixed term contracts included, our fixed term workers, I suppose, are, are they included in calculating that threshold for collective redundancy? Thanks, Geraldine, and thanks for the question. This is a really key one, and the answer is yes, fixed-term workers are included over the 12-month average. So, for example, if you have a fixed-term worker whose contract has simply expired, which by definition is a dismissal, that doesn't have to be included. But where you have a fixed-term contract um, over the last 12-month average, and it's at the point where you're going to be issuing notice of redundancy, you do have to include it. And also, as I said, any voluntary redundancies over the past 12 months have to be included. And that's why the audit and analysis of all employees over the past 12 months is one of your key preliminary first steps for your for your HR team to conduct. That's great. Thank you, Emer. Denise, a short question for you. It's just in relation to the requirement to give advance notice of the first meeting with an employee, placing that employee at risk of redundancy. The question is, does the employer have to give advance notice to an employee of that meeting? Um, yeah, that's kind of a short answer as well. No, you don't need to give advance notice of the at-risk meeting, but just to be aware that that's the only meeting you cannot give advance notice to. Um, you know, you, you are required to give adequate notice between 24 and 48 hours for every other meeting in the consultation process. But um, no, no advance notice. But actually, it's a question that comes up quite often. And in relation to the redundancy process, I, I guess the individual redundancy process, Denise, does an employer have to offer a right of appeal? No, there's no there's no such requirement to, um, to offer an employee right of, an, of a right of appeal. I suppose there might be circumstances where an employer would like to give um, a right of appeal. For example, if they have somewhat rushed the process or indeed if they haven't fully considered all the suggestions or proposals made by the employee then the the employer might seek to offer an appeal I suppose by way to almost mend the hand ever so slightly or indeed if there were circumstances where they haven't realized that they didn't need to offer an appeal but they have consistently you know and previously given a right of appeal then for the sake of consistency purposes they might wish to offer an appeal as well Um, but generally where you've where you've had you know, three consultation meetings over a three to four week period, and you've documented and recorded all of the considerations, the company's considerations of the proposals and alternatives to redundancy, and, and you've run a very thorough and meaningful and genuine process, then there is no requirement to give to give a right of appeal. Great, thank you. Emer, there's a couple of questions through around Collective redundancies, first of all, the definition of establishment. How much flexibility does an employer have with the definition of establishment and what guidance do we have as to how we could define it? Uh, so it it's quite, can be quite a complex definition and in practice it's considered to be the unit which the employee reports or is part of. There are a number of factors then when looking at you know what this unit is, what this establishment is, and we often you know ask questions of the employer and of the establishment, like you know does the unit have responsibility for its own management decisions? Is it separate or is it independent in terms of structure, in terms of budget? Does it have its own separate payroll function? And as I discussed in, in a little detail previously in our webinar, because this definition of establishment is really key when you're looking at whether the collective regime applies or not, 
that's why it can be worthwhile to to take the time to to drill into the definition of establishment because as I set out the obligations on an employer if they fall within the collective redundancy regime they really are quite onerous so it can it can be useful if by virtue of the definition of establishment they don't fall into the collective redundancy regime. Thank you. And another question is, and one that comes up a lot in practice actually, is can an employer stagger redundancies in order to avoid triggering the collective redundancy threshold? Yes, yeah, you're right. We deal with this one a lot. And that's what the question is asking is, you know, outside of the 30-day period, can they, you know, can an employer, can they stagger over a number of different 30 days to avoid the collective regime? And you're right, it is, it is a common query. You know, strictly speaking, there's nothing in the legislation, you know, in terms of anti-avoidance to specifically prohibit this um, and to, you know, uh, prohibit this effectively circumventing the legislation and there isn't much by way of Irish case law on this point. What we would say is that if it can be shown that the employer, you know, contemplated the reduced headcount but purposely chose to stagger the redundancies to avoid the regime, there is a risk there, you know, there there is a potential exposure to some of the claims that I set out, um, some of the fines in particular. So it's not risk-free. But having said that, you know, a, a responsible employer could take certain steps to, to mitigate the potential exposure there. And there may well be some very justifiable, good business reasons why the redundancies can be spread or, you know, to use the word staggered, they can be staggered out over a number of months. That it, That is very possible. Another question through Lemur is, do the consultation rules apply where there's a planned redundancy of 100% of the employees in the business or in a business unit? So I, I guess a, a generic question as to how do you know the consultation rules will apply? Um, you, you just need to look at the numbers, look at the thresholds and our, our previous slide. And I think we are we are going to be sharing the slides with, with everybody today. You know, if you it depends on the, what your total number of employees are in your establishment and that minimum threshold of five. So if, you, you know, for example, if the question is whether 100% of employees are being made redundant, if that's more than that meets that minimum threshold of at least five out of a total number of 21, then yes, your, the collective regime is, is going to be triggered. Exactly. Thank you. And another question, I guess, insofar as it relates to collective redundancies is how does an employer deal with the situation where employees are on various types of leave, like long-term leave or illness, uh, long-term illness absence? Yeah, and we, we deal with this a lot. And I suppose, firstly, don't forget about those employees who, who may be on, you know, out of the workplace for mid to long term basis for whatever reason. And that's why your initial audit of employees, you know, not just for the larger workforces, because um, it has happened where even in, in small workplaces, employees, because they have been out for so long, you know, they fall through the, the cracks. And the reason why they can't be forgotten about is, is really twofold. If they aren't being impacted by the redundancies, they should still be kept up to date in terms of business decisions generally, because even if their role isn't at risk of redundancy, you know, they might return to a, a very different looking team and they should be, you know, kept in the loop about that. But, you know, perhaps more importantly and specifically, if their role is one that is at risk of redundancy, all the more reason to, you know, to keep them informed on that basis. And to Denise's point, employers must be very careful to apply fair, objective, 
non-discriminatory selection criteria so that any rules selected for redundancy where somebody, for example, might be on, you know, long-term illness leave, parental leave, so that they, you know, there is inevitably for certain types of leave a heightened risk of a potential discrimination-based complaint arising out of that. So uh, for that reason as well, employers, you know, must be very, very careful with the with the selection criteria regarding those employees. And I think a related question to that is how does an employer handle an employee on maternity leave, which I think is one for you, Denise, if the employer is looking to implement redundancies? So employees on maternity leave enjoy special protection in in terms of redundancy in that during the maternity leave period, they cannot be any notice of dismissal will be deemed to be void. That's issued during the maternity leave. What you can do is that you can engage in them in the consultation process so that they're kept fully up to date in respect of what's happening for their team or for their department. But again, until the end of that protected leave, the notice of dismissal can't be actually given. So what we recommend probably in practice is that when the protected leave finishes it's almost like a refresh of a consultation process almost needs to happen again albeit it'll be much more concise because at that stage of the protected leave you need to be you need to satisfy yourself that there are no suitable alternative employments or redeployment opportunities that have come available at that stage at the end of the protected leave when they're returning to work that weren't available let's say when the redundancy program was actually happening during that maternity leave so that's really how you deal with the those on maternity leave that's great and another question denise I think for you is, um, when can I mention the redundancy package? So I suppose it's when in the in the consultation process, can the employer bring up what the redundancy package is? Yeah, so this kind of really goes back to the point that no decision can be made until the conclusion of the consultation process. And if we have to kind of, when addressing this question, because this one comes up a lot as well, we have to kind of keep it with that hat on that we need to make sure that the consultation process is not deemed a sham and that it's actually you know, meaningful and engaging. So in that sense, we probably would recommend that it's actually not until the final consultation meeting that you'd actually bring that to the attention of the employer mention it. But employees bring it up. So they do firstly. And then also employers are also keen to mention it earlier than the final meeting. So then just to mitigate any risk of adverse inferences being drawn from mentioning it too early, it's just, I suppose, get the communication right and frame it in, you know, in the context of, um, in the interest of being transparent in order to put you at ease, in order to give, this is the employee, in order to give full picture, we are, you the company is going to give uh, going to make a redundancy package available but this does not in any way you know predetermine the outcome of the consultation process and we're still absolutely committed to ensuring that we explore and consider all alternatives that are available so you'd have to kind of just to make sure that it's put in in that kind of terms so it's important to caveat it I suppose that it's not predetermined outcome to the consultation process if you're mentioning it early on in that process. Another question, Denise, that has come through is if an employee was on the temporary wage subsidy scheme and having returned to work, the company has a genuine redundancy situation for that person. Can the at-risk employee be made redundant and receive the statutory tax-free payments that are normally available in a redundancy situation? Um, Yeah, so... 
In short, yes, the employer the employer can move to make that person redundant where they have been availing of at first the temporary wage subsidy scheme and now the employee wage subsidy scheme. And there is nothing in the revenue guidance that precludes that from happening. This question probably arose in light because under the temporary wage subsidy scheme, you had to make a declaration to the revenue of for to participate in the scheme for a number of things. And one of them is that you'd retain employees for the duration of the crisis. And something that went almost under the radar was that the government announced in June, I think, that there would be no clawbacks if an employer did actually, you know, lay off a number of people or make people redundant. And so just to say that the employee wage subsidy scheme doesn't have any provision similar to that which was initially put into the temporary wage subsidy scheme that said that you have to retain employees or maintain that employment relationship. That's not a feature of the EWSS. So in short, no, that's fine to make an employee redundant and pay that statutory redundancy subject to the whole process of the session and, and the genuine reason. Very good. Yeah, subject to being a genuine redundancy scenario in the first place. Emer, another, I guess, maybe two questions for you on the collective process. So the first is, if an employer goes with a collective redundancy process, even though the numbers don't require it, is the employer obliged to follow all the collective redundancy statutory obligations, even though it's not a collective redundancy process on the numbers? I I would think that the, the conservative view is that they should. If they've chosen to go down that road, they should. I mean, they may be able to take a view on, for example, the notification to the minister if they're if they're not falling into the thresholds that require that notification. They might be able to take a view there. But if it's the case that they want to, you know, to do the responsible consultation process with employee representatives, you know, they should observe the parameters around it and, and the reason the parameters are in place that, you know, the the timings and, and the obligation to notify um, and inform are so that the process is one of, you know, a genuine consultation and, and consideration for all parties involved. Yeah, but I, and I suppose the key point being, if it's not legally required to follow all of those statutory obligations, then there's no repercussions if, you know, in terms of the, the repercussions you spoke about, like the breaches of the legislation, they won't apply. The employer decides not to follow them. And it's rare in practice, I think, that we see employers following a collective redundancy process where it doesn't apply. Very rare. The preference tends to be to go with a shortened process if, if it doesn't require yeah. collective redundancy. Yeah, especially in light of the fact that they also have the dual process that we spoke of, you know, on an individual basis as well. So you're, you're, you're right, it would be very rare that they would that they would choose to, to go the collective route if, if they're not triggering the thresholds. Yeah. A related question is, well, to both processes, but perhaps one for you, Emer, if you don't mind, is can employees record remote consultation calls or can the employer object to this? Any recording of, of remote calls should be done with caution, you know, quite apart from any employment law considerations. There are there are data processing uh, considerations to be taken into account. So I would certainly urge caution there and in terms of, you know, the reason for recording for a a note to be taken of the meeting is is much more common and it would be quite normal for a note taker to be in attendance visually via a remote 
hearing for the purposes of taking notes and you know under normal circumstances that, that note taker would physically be in the room so there's no reason why um, a similar process can't be conducted virtually whereby a note taker is simply a participant on the virtual call yeah that makes sense best to avoid the recording, I guess, if at all possible. And related to that, does an employer have to keep records of the collective consultation process? They do, yes. And great question. It's a specific legislative requirement to keep records for three years under the collective redundancy regime. And we quite often see that as part of a HR team's retention policy um, on, on, you know, data and record management. That's a, you know, a, a standard um, one that's quite well known amongst the, the HR professional community that three years is the time limit for those records. Very good. And then related to time limits, is there a time limit beyond which the employer will no longer be fined for breach of collective redundancy legislation? There is. So uh, you're home and dry um, after a year of, of an alleged offence under the legislation. So the minister has has a year to initiate a prosecution or any alleged offences. Thank you. And then just I'm conscious of time and that we're, we've run over and there's quite a number of questions to get through. So might just take a couple of more questions. It's been queried whether a copy of the, the templates will be sent out in the slides. We will send those out to all participants as well. Um, just be aware of that. But one question was just around the calculation of the numbers of employees normally employed. So it's probably a question for you again, Emer, is can we clarify if the number of people normally employed by the establishment when assessing if it's a collective redundancy should be the maximum number employed during the last 12 months and whether that includes permanent and fixed term employees and also any employees on leave, including long-term sick leave. Correct. All of the above. Yeah. Okay. Include them all, yes, over the past 12 months. Yeah, and, and that's why I've, I feel like I'm just over and over again, your audit will take in all those considerations that the question is very, very helpfully set out. Okay, well, I'm conscious that we've run just 10 minutes over time and we won't have a chance to run through all of the questions, but we will reach out to any of those individually that we didn't get to answer in the session today. But I do want to thank everyone for attending. Thanks all for your time and for your participation in the poll and in the Q&A. Thanks to Emer and Denise also. And we hope you join us again for our next Masterclass session next month. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay well. And thank you for joining. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.